Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. If you're just joining us, I strongly recommend you go all the way back to the beginning of the case of Charles Dexter Ward and catch up from there. A lot has happened. An awful lot. What follows is a discussion in the studio about what we've learned so far. It's not going to make a lot of sense to new arrivals. If you're still here, welcome back. Following my encounters with Diane Netley and Victoria Ness, and Kennedy and Marcus Byron's unusual trip to the Blake House, we thought now would be a good time to try to assimilate what we've learned. Kennedy and Marcus Byron had retrieved Robert Blake's notebook, so we made some copies and went away to read. A few days later, we all reconvened in the studio, the three of us joined by Dr. Eleanor Peck. What you're going to hear now is that discussion, which gets a little spirited in places. I'm Matthew Haywood. And I'm Kennedy Fisher. And this is The Haunter of the Dark. <sighs> okay, mm. so <clears throat> what do we think? Well, it's bollocks. Actually, I was going to say interesting. <laughs> Should we start with like a biography, a padded history of Robert Blake? Well, actually, could you do Edwin Lillibridge first? Because that seems like it sets up Blake. Right, sure. Uh, okay, so, uh, so, okay, you guys know I went to see Aramis Levesque about Lillibridge. And now in the past few days, I've been filling in some of the gaps on him. Okay, so Edwin Lillibridge was born in 1895 in Camden Town. I couldn't find much about his early life, and it's probably not relevant. He goes off to fight in the First World War, and he's in the same unit as Edward Lansdale, which is how come he attends the Melusine ritual. Now, it's unclear exactly what this ritual was supposed to achieve, but Blake's notebook has some hints because it refers, again, to this thing, the Haunter of the Dark. And Victoria Ness told Matt that they brought through some kind of entity, the curse of the 20th century that Levesque was talking about. I'm not swallowing that. No, right, but does it matter? It's about what they believe, isn't it, not what we <laughs> yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah, okay. Even then, it's still not really clear what this thing is. Well, Victoria Ness described it as uh, a mythical spirit of ancient Albion. That sounds like bollocks. Which is what she said you'd say. It's the Suffolk thing. The, I think it's what we heard in that house. The roaring. Ness thinks it goes back to when Dunwich was a port. And they brought the Necronomicon in through there. Some kind of occult organisation back then conjured this thing or summoned it or whatever. It got off the leash, trashed Dunnage, and dropped half the place into the sea. They then managed to secure the thing again and they basically trapped it. How? I don't know. With magic. Like Ness said, this took us all by surprise. These starry wisdom people weren't on our radar. The working theory is that there must be some kind of ritual object somewhere that controls this entity in Suffolk. And this is what the Church of Starry Wisdom are looking for. <sighs> it's as good a theory as What any. do they want to do with it? Well, that's alluded to in the Blake Notebook, isn't it? The spirit of old England is basically a fascist totem. You control this thing, you can cleanse the whole place. <laughs> cleanse? Yeah. It's exactly as sinister as it so, sounds. Sorry, to get back on track, Kennedy was talking about Lilybridge being at Melazine. What does that ritual have to do with an ancient spirit in Suffolk? It could be about preparing the ground, you know, like terraforming in science fiction. Maybe, if you're going to let this thing out of its cage, it needs to be entering a conducive environment. Death, destruction, misery. The 20th century pretty much had that covered, right? Yeah, but more than any other time in history? Well, it's all been a bit shit, but when you look at the scale, two world wars, atomic weapons, it's like someone turned history up to 11. So that's what Melazine did. 
And Victoria Ness thinks that whatever came through during that ritual was put into the body of a human being. But we don't know who. No, we don't. It's the spirit of a century, so it needs to go into the body of someone who was born on the first day of the century and died on the last. Ooh, that sounds like... Bollocks, yes. What happens to the entity when the host dies? It goes into the next vessel. But you have to wait. You can't put it into a newborn baby, which is why Melusine didn't happen until 1914. The vessel needs to be strong enough to accommodate it. So is this what Obed Marsh was trying to do in Pleasant Green? I thought that was supposed to be blood magic, a, a sacrifice. Yeah, but that's, that's just part of the process. It's not the end result. So who are they going to put it into? Melody Cartwright? No, she was born in 1999. The vessel doesn't have to be present. There was no 14-year-old running around the Battle of the Marne, was there? One second. Wikipedia might be our friend here. Oh, wow. What? Wow, OK. Wilberforce Ashton Heath MP. Oh, I thought he might be coming up again. Married to Leslie Tillinghast, and they have a daughter, Chloe, born on... January 1st, 2000? Yep. Well, it sounds like she had a lucky escape when the pleasant green thing went sideways. So is this what they think they can do with Blake's notebook? Get this thing into Chloe Ashton Heath? Can we take a moment to appreciate the idea that the next leader of the government might actually believe yeah, all this we stuff? Can, we can, but can we also get back on track? I'm acutely aware of how confusing all this can get, and if we keep jumping around... Sure, yeah, yeah, OK. So so back to Lilybridge, who survives Melusine and the rest of the war, and we pick him up again in Paris in 1925. He's in this photograph. Taken by Man Ray. Possibly taken by Man Ray. You've got Crowley and Picasso and the others, and in the back there you have Lilybridge talking to Obed Marsh, the Count Saint-Germain. And the new info is that the guy on the other side of Obed Marsh is Ernest Gladwin. Our fascist. Wilberforce Ashton Heath's grandfather. Right. So this is the guy that Lilybridge has the falling out with. And we know that Gladwin was friends with Crowley and he was into all this stuff. Something happened around that time which turned Lilybridge off the whole group, but Gladwin in particular. Fascism will do that. I think that's it. I think he didn't like where this was all going. So Lilybridge leaves Paris and he comes back to London and he starts working for the London Evening News. And his big thing is the rise of the right. He wants to tell people about it. He wants to stop it from taking hold in England. He was ahead of his time. But he's still also into the weird shit, too. So in 1935, Lilybridge goes up to Suffolk to look into the murders of the Marston family. And that's how he meets Robert Blake. Right. Okay, so I can pick up here. Blake is a junior at the East Anglian Daily Times, basically an apprentice. The Marsden House was his first big story, and it seems like he was only covering it because no one else was available. Either way, this is where he meets Lilybridge. And they must have hit it off because a year or so later, Blake moves to London and Lilybridge gets him a job at the London Daily News and becomes his mentor. So this is a formative time for Robert Blake. He's under Lilybridge's wing and he's learning all about the rise of fascism. So it's worth breaking off here to talk about that because while I'm lukewarm on this curse of the 20th century bullshit, both Lilybridge and latterly Blake seem to think that there was some kind of dark shadow cast over that period and that the fascist movement was either driving it or symptomatic of it. So let's look at Ernest Gladwin because he was very much the focus of Blake's later writing and he seems to have been an elemental force in the rise of the right. Gladwin's association with all this goes back to 1922. He was already an acolyte of Alistair Crowley's and he was friends with this guy, Major General J.F.C. Fuller. Now, Fuller is interesting for a number of reasons. In 1907, he published a book called The Star in the West, which was essentially a glowing review of Crowley's poetry. Two became friends, and later that year, they founded an occult group, the AA, together. Fuller later fell out with Crowley, following some inferences in the press that Crowley was bisexual. Crowley himself was delighted by those stories, of course, but Fuller didn't want to be associated with what at the time was considered 
sexual deviancy. Fuller went on to have a pretty stellar military career through the First World War and beyond and then became a military theorist. It was his ideas about battlefield tactics, specifically a manual he authored with the catchy title Provisional Instructions for Tank and Armoured Car Training, (laughs) which caught the attention of the Germans in the 1930s. Translations of Fuller's work were developed and evolved by Hitler's people to become the Blitzkrieg. And that's all good for Fuller because he's a rabid anti-Semite and fascist by this point. Unapologetic too. He died in Cornwall in 1966, having published a book just five years earlier, still banging the drum for Adolf Hitler as the saviour of the Western world. So anyway, Gladwin is mates with Fuller. And they come up through the fascist movement together. In 1922, Gladwin joined an organisation called the Britons, which had been founded by a guy called Henry Hamilton Beamish. The whole purpose of that group was to disseminate anti-Semitic propaganda. This was Gladwin's introduction into the world of fascism, and he was going to live in that world for the rest of his life. So we know that Gladwin knows Alistair Crowley, possibly through Fuller. He also meets another fascist around this time, a guy called Robert Byron Drury Blakeney, who would go on to run an organisation called British Fascists. Now, the names of these groups aren't too important because, well, there are a lot of them and it's all a bit <sighs> Judean people's front. <laughs> Blakeney, though, is mates with an American woman called Edith Starr Miller, who was married to Almeric Paget, the first Baron Queenborough. So already we're getting that the British fascist movement is very much part of the establishment from day one. And Blake would argue that it still is. Now, Edith Star Miller is interesting because she spent the 1920s working with another American woman known as L. Fry on a book called Occult Theocracy. Now, both Miller and Fry were nutty anti-Semites and they went around the world researching religion and occult practices for their book, the main intention of which was to prove beyond all doubt that the world was in the grip of a giant Jewish conspiracy. The book, which at the time was actually the most comprehensive study of occult groups and secret societies yet published, devotes a lot of time to trying to stand up the protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a fabricated document about Jews eating babies and so on. And they give over the last two chapters to praising the work of the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, Gladwin knew Miller and Fry, and through them, the occult world and the ideas of fascism started to get knitted together. Crowley, meanwhile, has gone off to Sicily, where he founded the Abbey of Thalema. And then, in around 1922, he goes to Paris because, well, he thinks that will be the perfect place to overcome his heroin addiction. Edwin Lillybridge joins him there in early 1925, and in the summer of that year, Ernest Gladwin pitches up. Hence the photograph. Right, so they're all there. Crowley, Gladwin, Lillybridge and Obed Marsh. This is an occult gathering rather than a fascist one. We don't really have a handle on Crowley's politics because even in those periods where he he looked like a bad guy, there are rumours that he was working undercover for British intelligence. What we do know, or think we know, is that it's around this time that Lillybridge finds his objection to this interweaving of the woo-woo with the anti-Semitic. He and Gladwin have this big falling out and Lillybridge comes back to England and starts writing pieces to expose what Gladwin and his mates are up to. Now, according to Blake's notebooks... The Church of Starry Wisdom was already a thing by this point. We think it had been a thing for a very long time. I know you do, but you can't back that up with paperwork. Maybe it's ancient, maybe it's not. Maybe it started with these guys at Melazine in 1914, or Gladwin dreamed it up in Paris in the 20s. Whatever it is, there's a good chance that Obed Marsh was ultimately behind it, and therefore whatever Ernest Gladwin thought he was in charge of, he was probably doing as he was told. What end? Well, we, we have to lean into what these guys believe, not... 
what is real, obviously. Reality doesn't care what you believe. That's his catchphrase. I like it. It sounds profound without having any actual meaning. Mm. To answer Matt's question, though, the supposed end would all tie into this curse of the 20th century nonsense. By 1925, Gladwin is deep into the British fascism movement. He believes in the notion of English exceptionalism, that we're an ancient people with certain rights and privileges. Crucially, he seems to believe in this haunter of the dark idea, something conjured by witches in Dunwich in the Middle Ages that has somehow, in his head, become this kind of Albion spirit of oldie England. Gladwin and his starry wisdom lunatics think that in order to gain control of this thing and cleanse England, they need to feed it with death and destruction. And the simplest way to do that is by winding up another world conflict and plunging the century into more chaos. They might not have a clear plan for that yet, but if that's your aim, then being part of the fascist movement must feel like you're in the right place at the right time. So sorry, to clarify, there's some kind of malevolent spirit that they want to loose on the world, which will be controlled by whoever has had this century curse put into them. That's the idea. And we're still thinking this is all Azathoth? Yeah, I'm not loving the we. It doesn't matter, because these people are going to act according to their beliefs, not according to reality. Reality doesn't... Okay, so I'm going to jump forward. Ernest Gladwin gets married at some point in the early 1930s, and he and his wife spend the honeymoon in Berlin with Crowley. By this point, Gladwin's entire circle is basically fascist and occultist, and he's building influence within the British establishment. In 1929, he helps Arnold Lease found the Imperial Fascist League. In 1933, Gladwin joins Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. There, he's hanging out with nutters like William Joyce, who became the Nazi propagandist known as Lord Haw Haw, and Nora Elam, the ex-suffragette who had become a fascist organiser. We're just three years out from the Battle of Cable Street and it's instructive to remember that the Metropolitan Police and the establishment were on the fascist side for that one. So we can see how Gladwin and his friend's influence was working. So now we get to 1935, which is a key year for Robert Blake. It's the year he met Lilybridge at the site of the Marston House murders. Looking back on that event from the time Blake was writing these notes... He has become convinced that the chain home radar testing at Orford Ness somehow woke this beast, this haunter of the dark, and caused it to possess Mary Marsden in some way. She murdered her family and the beast fed on the energy of that. Of course, Lilybridge was already into this stuff by then because he was investigating Gladwin and his starry wisdom people. And Gladwin is at this time corresponding with Heinrich Himmler, who also in 1935 founded the Arna Nerbe, which was an SS think tank bringing together the Aryan ideals of noble ancestry with occult theology. The Arna Nerbe and the Church of Starry Wisdom were basically twinned from here on. This is also the year when the Nordic League was formed, with Gladwin as a key member. This was a Nazi-sponsored organisation that sought to coordinate all the various fascist groups in England. The whole mission was to get the establishment and the government wholeheartedly behind Hitler and expose this supposed Jewish plot to take over the world. Gladwin was a director of the Nordic League, along with Arnold Lease, Archibald Moore Ramsey, JFC Fuller, all the usual suspects. Anyway, Lilybridge met Blake in 1935 and brought him to London and they start working to expose all of these people without having any real impact. It doesn't seem like Blake really bought into the more woo-woo aspects of Lilybridge's campaign until 1941, when Lilybridge disappeared. Right, and Blake has a theory about that. Yeah, and I think this is really the backbone of everything. It was always assumed that Edwin Lilybridge died in the Blitz, which is to say he was away from home for whatever reason when the bomb started falling and he was killed. That's a neat explanation for why nobody was ever found, but Blake thinks it's nonsense. 
In his notes, he claims that Lilybridge had found the Church of Starry Wisdom. And this is an actual building? Apparently so, but a secret one, because occultists like nothing more than a secret base. On the 5th of May, 1941... Lilybridge told Blake that he had a lead on where the Church of Starry Wisdom was, but that's all he said. No clues as to the location. That's the last time Robert Blake saw Edwin Lilybridge alive. So by now, we're fully into World War II. The most vocal British fascists, including Gladwin, find themselves locked up for the duration. But almost as soon as the dust has settled, they're up to their old tricks again. Only now there's new blood coming into the picture. A woman called Maximiana Julia Portus, brilliant French woman of Greek descent who held two master's degrees and a PhD in philosophy. She was a passionate advocate of animal rights, which is it's a weird thread that seems to connect a lot of these people, along with organic farming, which was Oswald Mosley's big passion. Portus was also a very keen Nazi. She had spied for Germany during the Second World War, and when that didn't turn out well for her, she married an Indian man with similar political views. She arrived back in Europe in 1945 using her new name, Savitri Devi. Ah. Yeah. So, Savitri Devi and her friend, Françoise Dior, who was Christian Dior's niece, formed this new wave of what's been called post-fascism, but isn't really post-anything. Devi's contacts link the likes of Ernest Gladwin to the American National Socialists, um, the Ku Klux Klan people that Edith Starr Miller and Elle Fry had been so enamoured of before the war. Devi also embodies this link between fascism and the occult. Dior, meanwhile, who was younger, became romantically involved with Colin Jordan, who had been Arnold Lease's protégé in the British Union of Fascists and would go on to found the British National Party with John Tyndale, who in turn would go on to form the National Front with A.K. Chesterton. Tyndale, by the way, was also shagging Dior when she wasn't sexually abusing her own daughter and then successfully persuading the poor girl to kill herself. Jesus. This is the point, right? Because you run the potted history and it's just a bunch of names and organisations. But even taking Gladwin and Starry Wisdom and any mention of the occult out, you're left with a list of the most reprehensible human beings who ever walked the earth. These people are monsters, anti-Semites, white supremacists, the absolute dregs of humanity. And they're still there today, in spirit, if not in person. Wilberforce Ashton Heath was a force behind the Brexit vote. He's anti-immigration, obsessed with stopping a handful of the world's most disadvantaged people from finding a safe place to live because he doesn't like the colour of their skin. These people are scum. And it's not just that they're still part of the establishment today, they are the establishment. And this is what Robert Blake was battling against. These occult fascist families the Tillingars, the Gladwins. They've spent the 20th century feeding their pet beastie and now they're trying to breed a vessel that will allow them to unleash the haunter of the dark and purify their beloved Albion. Blake couldn't stop them, not for want of trying, but it nonetheless all went spectacularly wrong for them in 2020 when you two bowled into Pleasant Green and broke everything. Yeah, yeah. So... I think that's the problem they're trying to solve now. Even with the right human vessel, even if they could complete the ritual that you guys screwed up for them in 2020, it seems like there's something inside the Church of Starry Wisdom, some kind of ritual artefact that they think they need. And I don't think they know where it is. The artefact? The church. I know it sounds unlikely, but Lilybridge thought he'd found it in 1941 
and then he vanished. Blake, in 1987, calls Diane Netley and says he's found the missing piece. These notebooks are all about him trying to find that church, but he doesn't think it's physically located anywhere. Blake has come to believe that the church exists in some kind of liminal space. A breach. I was going to say. So maybe Blake thought he'd found it, and then someone or something scared him to death during the storm of 1987, hours after he spoke to Diane Netley. But surely the members of the church know where it is. I don't know. They're all looking pretty hard for Blake's notebook. Obed Marsh would have known, certainly. But he's gone. Maybe Matthew coming back was an accident if someone was trying to bring back Marsh and hooked Matt instead. So it's gone. The church. No one knows where it is. No church. No ritual object. Their whole plan, over a century in the making, and it's fallen apart. Well, that's why they want this notebook. Because the trail that Blake followed is in here. Well, we have the book now, so can we follow the trail? I suppose so. Maybe. The question is, why on earth would he want to? Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.